out there and bust them crackings. I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, a walk through the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode three, Panama, 1946. I'm Keith Pilly. Uh, one thing before I get into the meat of this week's episode, though, I did want to respond to some listener email again. Um, listener Jesse from Des Moines emailed and asked why none of this was covered in high school. And, uh, you know, to be honest, my answer is that is a really good question. Um, you know, I think part of it is just the state of American education, you know, you are in high school history and uh, you're lucky if you get to, you know, even the end of World War One, let alone anything that happened after. Um, also, you know, I think there are just uh, elements in society that are not really interested in a public conversation about the sea monster conflict, which, um, you know, I, I have thoughts about, but this isn't really specifically the place for them um you know i just i guess my role with this podcast really is to to maybe help start some of that conversation um you know because i mean there's a lot of a lot of good with the bad you know um this is a time when uh you know at the through this story you will hear the u.s you know people came together we did some things um it was a it was a dark chapter in our history but uh it was one not without its rays of light. Let's let's put it that way. Um, anyway, so thanks for asking. And uh, yeah, you know, this is definitely a be the change in the uh, be the change in the world you want to see moment. Uh, so help me spread the word. Anyway, um, yeah. So last week we covered the early stages of the U.S. Navy's engagement with the sea creatures, just as World War II was winding down. If you remember, Blackjack Kraken attacked a convoy and nearly sunk a couple of ships before he was driven off by the destroyer USS Dahlgren with Lieutenant Rich Trumbull at the helm. Trumbull and some other officers weren't believed by the Navy at first until evidence backed them up. From there, as some sightings of El Pulpo off the coast prompted some public disquiet, the Navy's priorities shifted to convincing the public that there was no threat. This led to Operation Clean Sweep, allegedly an effort to get rid of the sea monsters, but really an effort to prove that they weren't there. The, uh, the operation met no sea monsters, and the Navy thought that was just fine. Um, I know there are some of you out there who've been anxious to get to some major property damage, and, well, I have good news for you. Um, this week, we're getting there. Of course, this was very, very bad news for the world at the time. So, if the wave of panic caused by the sightings of El Pulpo near San Diego in the fall of 1945 had caused pockets of something, you know, resembling limited mass hysteria in California, the, uh, the country at large took substantially less notice. The end of the war continued to dominate the collective mind of the nation in both practical and emotional terms. Emotionally, it was still a time of relief, exhaustion, and grief. 
On the practical side, the nation, and particularly the military, now faced the enormous task of demobilizing a gigantic war machine and transitioning to a peacetime economy. For the Navy alone, the all-out mobilization for war production had led to the construction of over 60,000 amphibious landing craft and over 6,000 naval vessels, the vast majority of which were no longer thought to be needed. Decommissioning these vessels and demobilizing their crews looked to be a staggering task, but one that was absolutely vital to the nation's transition back to peace. So, in November 1945, Chester Nimitz stepped away from the post of Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet, or SYNCPAC, like we talked about last week. Um, he had served as SYNCPAC throughout nearly the entire war, having been named to the post in December of 1941 in the wake of Pearl Harbor. The, the first Battle of Pearl Harbor, that is. I won't go in depth into his career here, because Nimitz was only a secondary player in the Sea Creature conflict but he was very central to the American naval effort in the Pacific in World War II. And, uh, you know, I suppose you could, the argument could certainly be made that he was the man responsible for the impressively trained and equipped force that existed in 1945. Um, you know, of course, a force that was due to be dismantled now. So Nimitz was elevated to the highest post in the Navy, Chief of Naval Operations, a position he told President Truman he would be happy to hold for a short tenure to help him guide the drawdown of naval forces. He was replaced as SYNCPAC by Admiral Raymond Spruance, an able commander who had guided several successful campaigns during the war. Again, I don't want to get too far into the weeds of Spruance's career here, although he was much more active than Nimitz in the uh, Sea Monster conflict. When the U.S. entered the war in the Pacific, Spruance had been a minor admiral who commanded the secondary vessels that screened the carrier groups of his good friend, Admiral William Halsey. In May of 1942, when the Navy found out through an intelligence break that Japan was going to attack the island of Midway, Admiral Halsey was incapacitated with a skin ailment and suggested Spruance as the man to take his place, opposing the Japanese attack. Though this was going to be a carrier battle, and he had no aviation experience, Spruance was given the job and performed admirably, showing calm good judgment and an uncanny ability to weigh risks. He decisively won the engagement that marked a turning point in the war in the Pacific, breaking the back of Japan's capacity for serious carrier operations and sending four of the six carriers that had attacked Pearl Harbor to the bottom of the ocean. After Midway, Spruance remained in the Pacific for the rest of the war, alternating between planning work with the SYNCPAC command staff and stints leading major fleets into battle. A consistently calm and steady leader, Spruance was one of the major architects of the American victory at sea, co-equal with Admiral Halsey. And uh, as for Halsey's record at sea during the war, trust me, we will get there. Uh, so, so, so when Nimitz was elevated to CNO, Spruance was a natural replacement for him as SYNCPAC. Spruance, like Nimitz, thought his primary duty would be to oversee the demobilization of much of the Pacific Fleet and its reorganization into a new, leaner peacetime form. 
Spruance, like Nimitz, was wrong. Throughout late 1945 and into early 1946, a steady stream of American naval assets scattered through the Western Pacific sailed east for home. The ships were to be reassigned into new formations, or mothballed, or broken up for scrap. The crews were, by and large, a bunch of draftees who were to be released from duty and sent home. The voyage of the submarines USS Finback and USS Dace in January 1946 was entirely typical, or at least began that way. The two submarines had seen long service in the Western Pacific and had been ordered back to Pearl Harbor in October 1945. The ships stayed there, moored with scores of their peers in an increasingly crowded harbor until after Christmas, when they were ordered to sail through the Panama Canal to an East Coast shipyard in Maryland for decommissioning. Following standard procedure, the two ships set out together on January 3, 1946. Their operational plan called for them to reach the west locks of the Panama Canal by January 12th, but no one in the Navy was particularly concerned when the 12th came and went without their arrival. Things were looser in the post-war Navy, sometimes bordering on slipshod. Several more days passed, with nothing more than desultory attempts to contact the submarines by radio before the Navy was ready to face the obvious truth. Two submarines were missing somewhere in the vastness of the Pacific. By January 17th, it was clear that something had gone terribly wrong with the submarines. They'd been sailing together so that even if one had experienced some grievous, previously undetected mechanical problem, the other should have been able to continue on at least to raise some help. Severe weather might make more sense as a potential explanation for both of them disappearing, but no such weather patterns were known to have moved through the Pacific in the past several weeks. They couldn't simply be lost. The idea of a catastrophic navigation failure on two modern U.S. Navy ships with state-of-the-art navigational equipment was just absurd and unthinkable. Search forces dispatched from Pearl Harbor and San Diego found no trace of the missing submarines. There had been hope that even if the sub's shipboard radios had not been powerful enough to reach Panama from wherever they were, and to be clear, this was just unlikely to begin with, but you know, reaching for straws, um, you know, they might be able to reach ships closer to them. But this line of inquiry also turned up nothing. The search was called off on January 24th, and the families of the crews of both ships were told that the subs had been lost in a freak storm in the East Pacific. The Navy issued a curt statement to the same effect to the press and hoped that it would preempt another round of panic. And to the relief of Nimitz and the rest of the Navy, it did. Within the upper levels of the Navy, opinion was sharply split. Was this incident caused by the sea monsters reoccurring again? Was the whole sea monster thing somehow still a mixture of hoax and mass hysteria that refused to die? I mean, after all, Operation Clean Sweep had found nothing. Had the subs collided and sunk? Had they run afoul of rogue, previously unaccounted for Japanese vessels that refused to acknowledge the end of the war? Had the captains and crew of both ships decided to defect to the Soviet Union? All of these possibilities, however remote, 
were brooded about in tense meetings at the Navy Department, with the group frustration over the impossibility of getting an answer palpable in meeting minutes that I read 60 years later. It was clear that the Navy brass agreed on one thing. It was important to stick to the official story to prevent panic and focus instead on the more immediate task of demobilization and getting on with everyone's post-war lives. As had happened before, the Navy's best efforts to contain the growing sea monster crisis ran afoul of the one element the brass had no control over, the sea monsters themselves. So the early period of the crisis, in which there could be any doubt about what was at stake, came to an abrupt end on the morning of February 6th, 1946, when El Pulpo and Blackjack Kraken surfaced at the west locks of the Panama Canal and laid waste to them. The morning began typically enough, with a steady stream of traffic approaching and moving through the canal to traverse eastward. At 10.02 local time, enormous pink tentacles erupted out of the water around the SS Wakeloff, a merchant oil tanker on approach to the West Locks. The tentacles wrapped around the Wakeloff and pulled it right under. The ship's hull groaned and strained before breaking up entirely. Commander David Statler was the naval liaison officer at the canal entrance, watching the scene unfold from the control center windows. He later gave an account to the FCDP, which I guess I just I have no choice but to just quote him at length. So this is all David Stetler. Quote, I had the duty at the West Locks that morning. I think I was about halfway through my shift. It must have been a busy morning. Every day was really busy then, with a great deal of Navy traffic heading east. You know, mostly from the drawdown, and also a lot of merchant traffic moving through as commercial shipping started to get reestablished. We acted like a control tower at an airport, just trying to impose some order on the ships as they lined up to enter the canal. It was intense work that took a lot of focus, even on the best days. That morning, my crew and I were hard at work, and then I heard one of my yeomen stand up and shout an obscenity. I turned to reprimand him and tell him to stick to his work, but then I saw what he was pointing at out the control center windows. A ship that was setting up for its approach to the West Locks, the Wakeloff, a very large oil tanker, was being pulled underwater by a bunch of just impossibly huge pink tentacles. You could see her hull breaking apart under the strain, and already there was an oil slick forming. We had a few PT boats and a destroyer assigned to provide security for the entrance to the canal. Right then, the destroyer was a few miles out to sea, completing an anti-submarine swing, but several of the PT boats, uh, Keith breaking in here, by the way, PT boat stands for patrol torpedo boat. It's just, it's a small Navy utility boat that is armed and, you know, it's a little boat with some weapons. It, uh, one of them isn't that much, isn't that big a deal, but, you know, in a group they can pack a punch. Um, anyway, resuming Statler. Um, several PT boats were right on hand. As the senior officer of the control center, I had the authority to give them orders, so I ordered them all to converge on the Wakeloff to help. To drive off whatever it was that was attacking, hopefully. I mean, we'd all heard the rumors about giant sea creatures in the Pacific, but it's one thing to hear a story over beer at the officer's club, and another entirely to see it attacking with your own eyes. 
And if they couldn't drive them off, at least help rescue some of the men who we could already see in the distance jumping off of the ship. What happened next was one of the saddest, most shocking events I had seen in my naval career, at least that far. Three of the PT boat skippers told me directly by radio that they weren't going near that situation because it was certain death. All I could do was write their names for a future court-martial and try to direct the rest of the forces to do something. That wasn't much use. Within a minute, the octopus had broken the wake cloth to pieces. The place where the ship had been was now just an oil slick and a lot of men floating in the water. The PT boats that weren't commanded by cowards moved in and started to effect a rescue. But in the control center, we were all struck by a bigger worry. We couldn't see that octopus anymore. Where had it gone? Then we saw. The locks of the canal entrance had just closed behind the ship ahead of the Wakeloff in line, a fleet oiler named Hayes. As we watched, a bunch of tentacles, black as midnight and definitely different from the ones that had broken up the Wakeloff, shot out of the water and latched onto the swinging doors of the locks and just ripped them to pieces. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I couldn't imagine the strength it would have taken to do that. Those doors were a couple of stories high, made of steel and concrete, and these tentacles just grabbed hold of them and shredded them. In the process, the body of the thing came out of the water a little, and I could see that it was a squid, black, and with a body substantially bigger than a house. I figured this must be the Black Jack Kraken people had been talking about from the convoy attack in 45. There was out-and-out panic on board the haze. She was essentially trapped in that lock with nowhere to go. And then, after the squid got the doors ripped off the entrance to the eastbound lock, we could see the octopus squirm its way in there and just set its tentacles onto the haze. It was a terrible sight. There wasn't enough water in there for it, all, for it to be all the way submerged, so we could just see this gigantic pink ball of flesh latch onto the haze and just go to work tearing her apart. Men were jumping overboard like they had from the Wakeloff, but in the tight space of the canal lock, there wasn't really anywhere for them to go to get away, so they'd go overboard and just get pummeled to death there. Meanwhile, the squid moved over to the gates of the westbound lock, which was empty right then, thank the Lord, and tore them off too. It was awful. There was nothing I could do. I radioed distress calls to any ships nearby, but nobody was close enough to help. Even our destroyer, the Chauncey, developed mysterious engine trouble and couldn't make it back to help. The PT boats had all fled, some of them to get Wakeloff survivors off to safety, some just out of cowardice. The squid and the octopus, Blackjack Kraken and El Pulpo, the newspapers would start calling them, just flailed themselves around and absolutely laid waste to the west locks of the canal, going in and out. They went in as far as the second doors and wrecked those too, and then did what they could to destroy any machinery alongside the canal they could reach. Plus the wreck of the haze was just stuck there in pieces, surrounded by dead men in the eastbound lock. In half an hour, the two of them just totally destroyed the west end of the Panama Canal. It was the worst thing I had ever seen, and my crew and I all thought that we'd gone crazy. Maybe we wished we'd gone crazy. End quote. It's hard to overstate the strategic importance of this attack. Uh, within, you know, just 
less than an hour of savagery, really. Blackjack Kraken and El Pulpo had rendered the west end of the Panama Canal unusable, severing the direct connection between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Ships that needed to move from one ocean to the other, or in other words, from one U.S. coast to the other, now had to do that by sailing thousands of miles south to go around South America by passing Cape Horn, adding weeks to any voyage. The effects on commercial shipping and the demobilization effort were just, they were so immense and catastrophic that you, you can't even put a number on them. The effects to a Navy trying to reorient to face a sudden unexpected threat were maybe even greater, although they were somewhat mitigated by the fact that the bulk of the U.S. Navy's forces were already in the Pacific when the attack occurred. The Navy had previously been moderately successful at keeping sea monster attacks out of the public eye, at least officially. After the attack on the Panama Canal, this was no longer possible even in a pro forma sense. On February 8, 1946, Harry Truman addressed the nation by radio, announcing that, quote, a new menace, apparently from the depths of the ocean, end quote, was threatening American interests. The president formally declared a limited national emergency, echoing Franklin Roosevelt's declaration of 1940, and pledged to use all of the capacities of the United States to quell the menace. He then ordered CNO Nimitz to devote the full strength of the Navy to find and destroy the creatures and end the crisis. That is it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please join me next week as we find out exactly what happens when Admiral Nimitz tries to devote the full strength of the Navy to finding and destroying the creatures. Spoiler alert, it doesn't go so great. Um, before we get there, I guess I would like to ask you once again, if you're digging the show, you want to help get the word out, um, help, please tell one person in your life who might care about adventure at sea or sea monsters or mid-century history or, you know, getting the truth out. Um, yeah, if you enjoy this, please help me spread the word, help, help my mission of getting the conversation going. Um, you know, leaving a review or rating the show would also really be a great little thing that helps the algorithms know this is a good thing. Um, anyway, thank you, and I will talk to you again next week. Bye. Lips think about just who they was attacking. Wanker boys, get out there and bust them crackings. I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Battle stations, boys. Out there and bust them crackings. Line up all them battleships and send the seafood packing. Train them guns out, boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. Dee 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 dee.